Welcome back to Missing. I am Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic today, Tim. It's a wonderful day. Uh, I hope everyone who's listening is doing well. And I hope more than anything, you're doing well, Tim. How are you? <laughs> Thank you. I am doing well. Uh, we are at CrimeCon this week, uh, later this weekend in Las Vegas. That is going to be an absolute blast. We're going to be bringing our audience a panel from CrimeCon as well. We're going to be speaking with private investigator and former bounty hunter Greg Overacker. And that's going to be a lot of fun um, to record at CrimeCon. And I'm just really excited to see everyone again. Yeah, it's going to be really great to uh, interact with the, the fans and interact with our peers in the podcast biz. So really looking forward to that. We will be there. We have those panels that you mentioned. We'll probably end up pulling some people aside maybe. Oh, yeah. At our podcast row table to do some on-the-spot type interviews. So that'll be fun, and uh, feel free to swing over to the Glassbox uh, section. Glassbox are our new partners. You can check out all of the shows that they have on their network, and you speak directly to the fine folks when you're at CrimeCon. Super cool uh, individuals and uh, very excited to and make the introductions there. And today, Lance, we are speaking about the disappearance of Lauren Dumolo. And we have two wonderful podcasters on. Their names are Hillary and Caitlin. And they do the podcast called Complicit, which is strictly about Lauren Dumolo's disappearance at this point. And for those who don't know, Lauren was 30 years old when she disappeared from Cape Coral, Florida. And she was a mother, a sister, a daughter. She had tons of friends. She had a sparkling personality by all accounts. And it's very impressive what Hillary and Caitlin have done, the amount of work, the amount of connections, the amount of interviews that they've compiled for this particular disappearance. Uh, they're really on a mission with this one. And the conversation was really fascinating. The disappearance of Lauren is really, really interesting. Yeah, it really is. Um, so we go through her disappearance with Caitlin and Hillary. And Lauren's height is somewhere between five foot and five two, and between 95 and 115 pounds. She was wearing a t shirt and shorts. And she's got some tattoos. She's got several tattoos, actually. She's got the word Namaste written in black ink down her side. And in the days prior to her disappearance, she was involuntarily hospitalized twice because she was hearing voices. And uh, and so she had no prior history of mental health problems. But this is, you know, th this definitely complicates the search for her. And anyone with information on the disappearance of Lauren Domolo is instructed to contact the Cape Coral Police Department at 239 Five seven four three two two three, or you can submit an anonymous tip at capecops.com slash tips. Additionally, you can contact Crime Stoppers at 1-800-780-TIPS. And make sure to check out Hillary and Caitlin's website at complicit-podcast.com, and there are links in the show notes. All right, everyone, thanks a lot for listening. Please follow us on social media at Missing CSM. Welcome to the podcast, Caitlin and Hillary. How are you today? We're great, thanks. How are you guys? Great. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us and uh, sharing all of the information and all the work that you've done on uh, this particular missing person case, uh, which we will get into. But 
I wanted to first start off by saying how amazing you've the work you've done on this case is is amazing and I'm just curious where you first learned of this and what your background is because you're so effing thorough with everything it's so impressive thanks so this is Hillary we first learned about it surprisingly through Facebook so we know so the missing woman is named Lauren Namolo and we happen to be friends with her half-sister Lindsay we grew up with Lindsay we're super tight and we saw Lindsay posting one day help find my sister and I thought what what's this and of course you call and you find out more and from that moment, we, we both happened to love true crime. And, you know, this was a case that we had, you know, one degree of separation from. So we kept very close to Lindsay, who you'll hear in the podcast. Um, and as the case evolved and unfolded and more time went by, we thought this is so crazy. It's a real mystery. There are so many strange things and coincidences. And we, you know, Lindsay kind of was joking one day and she said, oh, Hillary, you're going to write the book about this someday. She knows I love to write. And I said, no, 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 we need to help now. Like, what are we going to do to help now? You know, hadn't gotten much press coverage at the time. And, um, you know, I had been talking to Caitlin, we had been theorizing (laughs) things that could have happened. And she said, you know what, we need to make a podcast. And we did. I mean, that's really how it all happened. Yeah. We love- but as far as our background is concerned, we have no background in this whatsoever. <laughs> no background in investigating, no background in podcasting. Uh, we literally just thought, what can we do to help? And we started going with all the information we had. And Hillary is a fantastic writer and started putting all the pieces together. And voila, here we are. <laughs> well, good job. Great job, because a lot of people don't have backgrounds in, you know, investigative journalism or podcasting, and they try to take on something like this, and then they realize how much heavy lifting is involved, and more often than not, they move on from that particular project, uh, which you have not done, and you have got some very good press on it. But I want to ask, you said you're fans of true crime, but you call your podcast a true mystery podcast. When did you make that decision to take out the word crime and replace it with mystery? Pretty early on, I actually wanted to create an entirely new genre. Um, Maybe I still will, who knows? (laughs) Um, But because it's not, it's pretty- We don't know if it's a crime. Yeah, it's leaning (laughs) towards it's a crime, but honestly, it's just a mystery at the moment. We don't know what happened. So I guess, but before we get into the mystery, I just like, how how did you pull off the podcast? Like how- how in the world did you figure out like how to get the equipment to edit it oh. and, and structure it and all that? Oh, I can answer that one. So um, <laughs> I did some light research on microphones, uh, ordered uh, one, a good one, I mean, a, not a good one, I, one that had good reviews that wasn't a, a bank breaker on Amazon. And um, Hillary did the research on uh, production companies because we have no idea what we're doing and we don't do the editing um, we do all of the, the writing, the planning, the interviewing, um, the music selection, the artwork selection. We do all of that, but we hand it all over to a wonderful company called Resonate Recordings, and they actually have the team that knows what they're doing. So <laughs> we can't take the credit for 
putting the actual podcast um, together in that sense. We just create the whole thing and tell them what we want. But we're very active in the the editing process. And we, you know, sometimes our poor engineer, I mean, not poor, he's great, but this guy, Adam, sometimes gets many, many, many messages back and forth from us about like, change this, this pause is too long. This song is not the right tone for this part. Like, wait, you left out this one part of the, you know, 8,000 page interview with Paul that was four hours long. We need this one quote in there. So they're great, but yeah, we don't do much of the behind the scenes um, editing and technicality stuff. I had looked into what um, other podcasts who I love and I noticed one of the themes in many of them was that Resonate Recordings were their engineers. So we were very lucky that they liked the story. Um, our um, producer, our contact over there, Whitney, had just come off Culpable, which maybe you've heard of that podcast. And we hit it off really well. And so, you know, luckily they took us on um, with no background, no experience, but we described the case. I had already written, I want to say three episodes and sent it over to them and had purchased music and all that. So we were very grateful that they took us on as, as clients. And I would say that all is a strength for, for the two of you, because it leaves you with more time to research the disappearance and to put the episodes together in a very consumable way for the listener and to make sure that all your facts are, are correct and accurate and you're saying the right things and you're not having to worry about learning a new editing software or, or anything like that. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. We wouldn't have had time. No. <laughs> it took so much. I mean, it still takes so much time. I mean, things are a little slower now than they were in the, from the get go, but I don't know how people like how if you guys do all of your own. I don't know how you find the time. It's so much work <laughs> just to do the the research and the interviewing and, you know, just hunting people down and, and trying to get your facts double checked and to do that and have to learn how to edit and put it all together. That sounds like a 24 hour round the clock job to me. And sifting through all the information. I can't tell you how many days in a row Lauren's father, Paul calls me with this lead, that lead. And, you know, we have to triple confirm it and follow this. And, you know, it's like, it's a lot. There's so many things that have come up in this case that never have made it to the podcast, never have made it past, you know, even on a screen of me typing it because we've found out it wasn't true or we have nothing to corroborate it. So there's like a lot of that. We, we do all the homework, you know, too. Well, interesting and great job. And um, okay, so let, let's get into Lauren's disappearance a little bit. Can you tell us um, what we know about Lauren? There's a lot to know about Lauren. So I, I, we should also say that while we know her half-sister, Lindsay, we have actually never met Lauren. Lauren is a bit younger um, and never lived in the same area. So what we know about her is that she is was 29 years old at the time of her disappearance. Um, she's a tiny little thing, five foot, 100 pounds. She is the mother of a now, at the time, six years old, so uh, eight-year-old little girl. She's originally from New York and kind of carried that New York accent and attitude with her when she moved to Florida. And there's, she's, she's a lot of um, tattoos. She really, really, really is known for her meditation practice. She has a huge, huge namaste tattoo all along the side of her torso. So it's a, a great identifiable feature. But as far as 
you know, Lauren's personality, we, from, by all accounts, she's super bubbly. She's happy. She's friendly. She will give you the last dollar in her wallet. She'll give you the shirt off her back that she's, her friends describe her as selfless. So she's this really positive energy seeking woman who just has a light and a laughter about her. At what point during your research did you start to discover these things about Lauren, having never met her? You know, and I'm only asking because Tim and I, with the nonprofit that we work with, Private Investigations for the Missing, we see so many missing person stories, and some of them really stand out to us because it's like somebody that uh, it feels like you might have gone to high school with or you could be related to or just you know someone that would be fun to have a beer with or something. How at what point did you discover that this might be the case with Lauren, that, you know, she was bright and bubbly and a good person and and probably someone who the two of you would love to get together with? Yeah, pretty quickly, because as we well, we you know, we had access to her family. So they, of course, have their biased impressions of her being related to her, although that I guess, you know, not always. But, you know, that um, when we finally got a hold of her friends, um, you know, we saw this other great side that was very consistent with how her family described her. And I think even in her appearance and her photos, her smile is infectious. Um, it almost looks like she's laughing in every picture. She looks super happy to be a mom. You know, there's just a lot of light around her. She's blonde. She's bright. I mean, it's just, you know, she's beautiful. It's this, she had a, has this effervesc effervescence about her. Now, everyone has two sides, right? There's always a little secret hidden, hidden away. And when we first started learning more about Lauren, learning more about the case, understanding what happened, understanding the events leading up to her disappearance, we also quickly saw a darker side. And it was that she was in recovery from a drug addiction. And initially, her family had sort of tucked that away from the press, from us, from everybody. You know, no one really knew because she had technically been sober for two years. Um, she did suffer in her past from a heroin addiction. Her family has since opened up, I mean, full open book about that um, and all her struggles. And it's part of, I mean, it's part of her history, right? It's part of her. And it's something that she had worked for many, many years to overcome. And she was, she was doing it. She was in it. But I think, you know, with any addiction, it doesn't leave you. You just have to work at it. So, and that's what she was doing. So, you know, I don't want to say a dark side, just a side, that, another side to Lauren, that she had really struggled, she had overcome, and she was managing her addiction. Yeah, but I'll also add that Hillary mentioned that um, in answer to your original question, like, how did you, when did you come to find that Lauren was this like happy light up the room kind of girl? We not only spoke to her family, but when we started interviewing her close friends, they really were the ones who had probably the most honest description of her and her personality um, because they're, you know, they're not her family. So they don't have to have that unconditional love for her, but they do. And um, the friends of hers that we interviewed are actually friends that she's been through these darkest times with. Um, they're her friends that she met through rehabs and recoveries, and she's been in you know, the depths of using with them. They've recovered and gotten sober together. And 
even the friends who've been with Lauren in her worst possible lowest state, you know, like, I don't know how to describe it. I'm, I've never been a drug addict, but imagine the worst. They still have nothing but the best things to say about her and how strong she is and how her smile, I'll never forget. I think it was her friend Erica said that her smile just lights up the room. Like she walks into a room, smiles and the whole room just seems brighter. So yes, there's the dark side, but it seems like even through that, she was so loved by everybody. So I think that's important. And that made us feel more compassion toward her missing more so than we already did. Right. And um, was there any indication that she had a relapse? On the contrary, actually. So without, I mean, the story is a little convoluted, but leading up to her disappearance, that morning of her disappearance, she was actually released from a mental hospital. We can go into more detail about that, but in that mental hospital, she, where she was being held on a 5150 hold, by the way, it's called a Baker act in Florida. That morning she was released. The hospital did a drug screen. She had no illicit drugs in her system except for THC. So we know that day didn't have an opioid or anything, you know, other kind of substance that she had abused in the past. Um, and when she disappeared and her family went to her apartment to look around for some clues, they found her bottle of Suboxone. So Suboxone is something that opioid addicts take to stay off of drugs. And it wasn't full. It looked like she had been taking it. So she was following her doctor prescribed medication. We know she had been meditating and um, attending meetings here and there for Narcotics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous. But um, there's nothing to suggest that she had relapsed into drug use. In fact, we found in our investigation evidence of the opposite. And why was she in the hospital? She actually had been institutionalized twice leading up to her disappearance. The first time was about three weeks prior. And that was because she had been behaving, I guess, lack of a better word, erratically, and um, seemed like really paranoid. And there's a nearby public park where she frequented to meditate in the mornings. And she uh, had been seen jumping into the water, almost as though trying to like run away from someone and swimming through a boat basin, like an active waterway with alligators in it because it's Florida, like not a swimming water. So that was the first time she was taken into, you know, a mental hold pretty sure it was just like a park goer that called 911 mm -hmm. or called it in. Mm -hmm. Then she was there on that hold. And like Hillary just described, she didn't have any illegal drugs in her system. I think in that instance, she had Suboxone found in her system, which yes. proves she was taking her prescribed anti-opioid drug medication. And she ended up staying in that hold for a little longer than the, uh, than the mandated 72 hours. She went back to life, um, started, you know, going around applying for jobs because she had become unemployed when she went in for that hold because she didn't show up to work for a week. So she was out looking for jobs and just trying to get her life back on track. And then the second time she was taken in right leading up to her actual disappearance was, um, kind of the doing of her boyfriend at the time he had contacted Lauren's father, which he never, ever did. So it was very out of the blue and, and uncharacteristic. 
And he said um, that Lauren was behaving erratically again, and he was worried about her. And Lauren's dad lived in California. So from across the country, he says, well, you know, to the boyfriend, like, do what you need to do. If you think she needs to be taken back in on a mental health hold on a Baker Act, please call. So that's what the boyfriend did. And that's what ended her in there the second time. And then like Hillary just said, the morning she was released from that is the last day that anyone ever saw her. So it's very complex and confusing because no one really has the right answers for what happened. And her father, Paul, has said numerous times she has no history of mental illness. We know she wasn't using drugs again or, you know, the hospital confirmed that. Um, The only the the initial on the initial hold in the paranoia, they had diagnosed her with a brief psychosis. So um, they chalked that up to go back a month. She had had an abortion on May 22nd, and they thought that because of postpartum hormonal imbalances or something to do with that procedure, that she had become paranoid, had a break with, you know, reality. And, you know, it it had culminated in this June 1st event of her jumping into an active waterway and a park goer witnessing it and calling in for for the hold for the psychiatric facility. That's what the hospital, the mental hospital said. And her father was her proxy. So he, and therefore we have access to all her medical records. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. That's the only thing that they could have chalked it up to. And so we're going with that as an explanation. But again, maybe not. We don't know. Right. Okay. So no no diagnosed history of mental health problems. She had had an abortion that maybe led to some mental troubles um, Mm -hmm. about a month later. Does that sound right to you guys or what do you think? I, we try not to have opinions publicly because <laughs> we really just want to follow the facts. So May 22nd, she has an abortion. That day, her boyfriend comes home from work. She's laying on the couch. According to Lauren via her dad, she asked him to get her a bowl of soup and he beats the crap out of her. So we have an incident, a traumatic incident of an abortion. I mean, you know, whether it's planned or not, I think on your body, I'd call it traumatic. So you have that. And then you have now another physical and emotional trauma happening the same day. And then, you know, 10 days later, not even eight days, nine days later, you're so paranoid that you're jumping into an active waterway because you think people are after you. I'm not sure mentally how uh, that's, I mean, that's what the medical professionals at the Park Royal Medical Facility have said on paper, on record. I think everyone has, can just think about that and have opinions, but that's, that's what we were told. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it sounds like if you're just a person hearing this, it would immediately, at least for me, I would normally think, oh, she must be on drugs. Like that's crazy behavior. Only person on drugs would behave like that. But then, you know, like we know the facts that she had no drugs in her system. In fact, she had the Suboxone in her system. So that totally confuses everything because whatever she was experiencing was not in fact drug enhanced, or at least as far as our knowledge and medical records can show. So it just adds more confusion to what was really going on. And just to throw another, just to clarify another thing, she didn't, she had a legal abortion 
at a clinic. So it's not like she went to some, you know, back alley and someone botched it. Like it was a legit abortion. Yeah. And you can see these um, incidents just boiling over, like leading up to this tipping point uh, where she does have this mental, uh, emotional break. Now, you mentioned this abuse that happened. Is Was that common in her life? That depends on who you ask. Mm-hmm. Yeah. According to her, any information that Lauren would relay regarding her relationship with her boyfriend, his name is Gabriel, he goes by Gabby, she would only tell her friends the good things most of the time. Um, there's one friend she confided in one time. Um, but other than that, she kind of put on her happy smile and told everybody that everything was great and how how well he treated her and how happy he made her. Um, but there are other people who have, you know, said that that's not what they've experienced. And um, I know that Lauren's sister, Cassie, who's like the face of this, um, well, one of the faces, I guess, Paul and Kathy are equally like the main people involved in the media when it comes to Lauren's disappearance. Um, Cassie had only gone down and spent one day with Lauren and Gabby as a couple and said that everything seemed perfectly fine. So I don't know. It just, I think it just depends on who she was opening up to and what story she was telling. We know that she told her friends and family very little and didn't want them necessarily involved. She knew that if she told her father that Gabby had beaten her, that he would come down and beat him basically. So um, I think that's why she didn't. It's my opinion. Um, but in our investigation, and we have a local search team on the ground there, we're, we're not in Cape Coral, but um, we do have local people. They discovered that places like the 7-Eleven, she would go in to the 7-Eleven on the corner and everyone there knew full well that she had been abused domestically because she would open up, they would see bruises, they would ask her about it. But to her friends who lived across the coast or her par- you know, her family that didn't live nearby either, she right, she was she was hiding it. So you said people at, at the 7-Eleven? Yeah. So people, it was sort of her safe haven is what we discovered. So employees at the 7-Eleven, which was right down the road on the corner, um, just to insert this little fun fact here, Lauren did not drive. She didn't even have a driver's license. So she walked everywhere. So 7-Eleven was very close, convenient, and she walked and she became friends, I suppose, with the people who work there. And she would confide in them that, you know, she was hiding out for a minute because Gabby was, you know, beating her, Um, things like that. I don't mean to sound so flippant about it, but it's, I mean, it's just, it's such a sad situation um, that she was comfortable telling strangers instead of her own friends and family. So it does depend. And I'm sure there were other moments when he was treating her like a queen. And that's, that was her party line to people. Oh, he treats me like a queen. So I'm sure there's a cycle of abuse pattern there that is pretty standard um, and probably not surprising, but still terrible and shocking. Yeah. Did he live with her? Yes, he did. They lived together. This, this too is a, is a strange series of events. So Lauren had been living on the West coast of Florida, her mom and her stepdad, I mean, on the East coast of Florida, her mom and her stepdad lived on the West coast of Florida in Cape Coral. Lauren, when she got clean, she was in a rehab, a detox facility on the East coast of Florida. She decided, okay, I'm good. I'm going to go 
live close to my mom and my stepdad and my sister who's over there. And I'm just going to go. So she goes and she lives with her mom and her stepdad who have a two bedroom apartment. When she moved in, she, there was another guy like kind of staying on the couch. And that happened to be Gabby who then they started dating. So that's how she even met Gabby, her boyfriend, um, because he was crashing on their couch um, because this, her, her stepfather, Victor and Gabby work together. They're good friends. Gabby is significantly older than Lauren. And so, and he had just gone through a divorce or was going through a divorce and he was on their couch. So that's how they met. So when they started dating, they decided, oh, you know, this is, this is, you know, great. Let's go move on into our own place together. So they found an apartment two blocks away from Lauren's mother and her stepdad. And Lauren took the apartment in her name. So it was technically her apartment, but Gabby lived there with her. We can't just give you a straight answer on things. Everything has a story behind no, it. No, no, it's, it's all good. It's all good. Um, I, I apologize if I missed it. How old was Gabby? Gabby was uh, 46 and Lauren was 29. He was 46 and she was 29. Yeah. What did he do for work? So he and Victor, this becomes important later on, he and Victor, who was Lauren's stepdad, um, they work for a flooring company, an interior design and flooring company. And they are the ones to install new flooring, rip out old flooring. And why does this become important later on? Because... They have a work van and the work van lives in the carport, you know, outside of the, of the apartment complex where Victor and her stepmom live and Gabby and Victor share the work van. This work van eventually becomes pretty pivotal because in one of the searches that the Cape Coral police authorize involves cadaver dogs and there's a whole story around the cadaver dogs. Um, basically the park that Caitlin referred to earlier where Lauren had see been seen jumping into the active waterway, the boat basin there, it's a public park. It has a little sunbathing beach and the park is truly the focal point of the case because Lauren's belongings start popping up there almost as if planted after people have been searching. Um, almost like someone's playing a game toying with people. So they keep finding her belongings in the park. The police finally authorize a cadaver dog search. And within minutes of the dogs arriving to the park, one dog that was named Caliber, I all the details of this, gets into a scent, lifts up her head, runs across the street to an apartment complex where, which happens to be Victor and Lauren's mother. Uh, they live right across the street from the park. And the dog alerts on the van, the work van. The dog then continues up a flight of stairs to the front door of Victor and Lauren's mother's apartment. Wait, I think you, you left out an important part. The dog didn't just alert on the work van. The dog alerted to the passenger seat and then got into the van and laid down in the back corner which if you, I'm sure you both are familiar with some dog searching techniques, because I know that um, they use them in a lot of missing people cases, but the, when a, according to the handler of the dog, when a dog lays down, they are, that dog is certain. Like, it's not just like a, a maybe, it's like a yes, this is, uh, this is exactly what I was trained to do and I have found it. So then, as Hillary was saying, after the van alert, then the dog continued 
and not just to their apartment where where Lauren's mother and Victor, the stepdad, lived. They lived on a second floor. Like this dog navigated up the stairs to like one of many apartment front doors. It's just crazy. The van is, you know, impounded and combed over by Cape Coral forensics or, you know, Lee County Sheriff's forensics. And it's returned within a week due to, at the time they're told, a technicality. And that technicality is that Victor and is in, and Gabby, because they share the work van, that they work in flooring. And so often you can find human remains odors on floors. If someone has passed away, if there's menstrual blood, if there's feces and all this, this is the explanation that the forensics team gave to Lauren's family. They gave back the van on the technicality. Now, two days later, magically that van is impounded, not impounded, sorry, totaled, sent to a junkyard, shredded. By who? Whose decision was that? By Victor and Gabby. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. Okay, and who's Victor to uh, to Lauren? The stepdad. Well, Victor is her stepdad. Yeah. So if so, they the van. It's actually even more of the story. So the van gets returned. They go to the owner of the company. He's a man named Oscar. Now, Oscar and Victor, who's Lauren's stepdad, have been friends for thirty years. I mean, great buddies have always worked together. And Victor, uh, I don't know what the conversation entailed, but he, we know that he asked Oscar for a new work van and Oscar said no. So right after that conversation and that fight with Oscar, they sent their van that had just been returned by the police to a junkyard to be shredded. Two days after that, Victor is found dead in a hotel room hanging. Now, the police never investigated that death as suspicious. They classified it as a suicide. But we, well, we're not, we don't have opinions, but it seems like it should have been investigated because of the connection to Lauren. But I don't know if the police made that connection. I think that um, Oscar's apparent suicide um, looked like a, a standalone event. And I don't know if the connection was truly made between the company and the van and the cadaver dog and Lauren's disappearance. But it is a, a strange turn in the story when uh, more tragedies pile into this with connection, you know? Yeah, it, it sure it sure is a strange turn in the story. With the cadaver dogs hitting in the van and specifically in the passenger seat, does it strike either of you as odd that the dogs got into the van in the first place? Was the van left unlocked? So that's my question. It's a work van. Was it just left unlocked and they were able to just go in or did somebody let the dog in? No, they let the dog in. They alerted on the outside of the van, um, the initial alert. And then because it belonged to... and. Um, you know, Lauren's stepdad and, and boyfriend um, who happened to be home at the time because they also had alerted at the front door of the apartment, they were allowed in um, to both the vehicle and the apartment. And there were a number of items confiscated or taken from the apartment as well. And what's actually also interesting about this whole event is Lauren's mom had posted on Facebook that night and 
almost a, a defensive post. It was, I don't remember the exact wording, but it was like, what an eventful day. Dogs were at my apartment. They said we're cleared. They did swab, still no sign of Lauren. They're looking for a body. And it's funny because nobody was cleared. In fact, they took items from the apartment that day. So it was a strange thing to post. Um, and, you know, while we're here, I just want to kind of throw out too that in all of this, since Lauren had disappeared, three people never searched for her. Those three people were her boyfriend, her stepfather, and her mother. So for her mother then to post what I interpreted as a defensive post on Facebook the day the cadaver dogs are there when we know from her family um, that she was actually quite upset crying hysterically and um, not you know it didn't match what she had posted that day so it, it was just it seemed like it was a very strange and shocking day um, they thought that the rest of the family had called the dogs to be, you know, to be called in to search their apartment. Cause at this point, you know, half of her family was highly suspicious of them um, as they hadn't shown up to help or hadn't asked questions, hadn't even tried to do their own investigation. And they didn't, you know, they weren't even aware the search was happening. They didn't know the cadaver dog search was happening. This all happened to have happened quite organically and how the dogs were doing their job as Caitlin was saying. So not only did the boyfriend, Gabby, the stepfather, Victor, and the mom never go searching for Lauren. But within two weeks of Lauren's disappearance, uh, her sister and father were combing her apartment one more time, looking for clues, whatever. Her boyfriend, Gabby, showed up and took the TV. Like, he didn't show up to help. He didn't show up to, to you know, search the area or look for clues. He was there to get the television, to take it to the new place he was staying. And his response to them as to why he was taking it was, oh, well, she's obviously not coming back. So like this, is, I'm just going to take the TV. <laughs> so crazy. Okay. Sorry. That was my, my add-in. It's not just that they weren't searching. It was like not searching and not even hopeful that there would be anything to search for or find because she would never be found or never come back. And it was actually five days after she disappeared. Not two Oh, weeks. there you go. Were the dogs, were they law enforcement dogs? It's a company called Peace River Search and Rescue Organization um, that were hired by the Cape Coral Police Department. So we actually have an entire bonus episode. It's called What the Cadaver Dog Smelled, dedicated um, to exactly this scene in the story. Um, and it, we speak with the president of that organization and the founder. So we get a real insight into you know, that day, what happened. And he does a great job of debunking the, no, my dogs won't smell feces. Nope. My dogs won't smell menstrual blood. Nope. That's not why they stopped like that kind of thing. Yeah. He like personally trains all of those dogs and he, he knows specifically which dogs were there and he knows what they can and can't do. He tests them himself and he very, very informative. Okay. So no other kinds of dogs, just the dogs from um, Peace River Search and Rescue? Yeah, they only used cadaver dogs as far as, I mean, as far as we and the family are aware. They, there were no um, bloodhounds like searching for a trail or anything like that. It wasn't like, here, smell this shirt and then go find Lauren. It was um, 
here's where we last know she was. The dogs are trained to sniff out, you know, de decomposing and decaying human remains. Ready, go, see what you come up with. And like we said, of all the places in the world from a public park, they could have gone. They could have found nothing. They could have found some other random Florida disaster. I don't know. But what they did do, go straight to her mother and stepfather's apartment and her stepfather and boyfriend's work van. It's really fortunate that that company that uh, that you spoke of works the Peace River, right? That was the name mm -hmm. of the company. Yep. They they work hand in hand with law enforcement to the point where law enforcement contacted them to. Yep. To, mm -hmm. Yeah. That's really fortunate. It is, and actually, so Mike Hadsell is is the president and founder and all that. He's wonderful. I mean, he's been doing this for forty two years or something crazy. I mean, he just really knows his stuff. And he has since been released by Cape Coral police, uh, meaning no more service is required in this case. So he is proactively and for free continuing on Lauren's case to help whenever her family gets more information. It still kind of sounds a little weird to me though. So the, the dogs hit in the van and then also in the apartment, like if, if there was a, you know, decaying, body in both places. That seems like that would have drawn a lot of attention. Agree. It does, right? The hit in the apartment was, so in the living space in the apartment, there's um, like a laundry room off of the main living area that's kind of separated instead of by a proper door, there's like a curtain that hangs. And so that curtain, for example, the dogs hit on. So that curtain was taken into custody. I believe they also alerted at the couch or am I crazy? No, that's a whole other story that actually we haven't put into the podcast because I can't figure out how it relates. It's just another very circumstantial, sketchy incident that surrounds this case. Um, and the funniest part about that is that the they said the, the lead detective on the case told Lauren's family, oh, the curtain had methane gas and that's what the dog smelled which, okay, you could take that at face value, or you could realize that methane is colorless and odorless. Sorry to interrupt. Who said that? Who said that the dogs were smelling methane gas? The lead detective. His name is Detective Nick Jones. Why would, what, what would that even prove? Like, what would that even, I, I guess I'm just kind of venting right now. What would that, why would someone even say that a, a cadaver dog mistook a deco uh, the decomposition of a body for methane gas? The, the, our episode with Mike was so eye-opening and just wonderful. And at one point he even makes a remark how um, he was watching the, the Dr. Phil, Dr. Phil had covered Lauren's case and had talked about cadaver dogs. It's such an integral part of the case, obviously. And he said, as he was watching it, he spilled out his coffee all over his computer. And he told detective Jones that he owed him a new one because he just spit out his coffee because he couldn't believe what was being said on the Dr. Phil show by him. I mean, detective Jones was the one talking about the cadaver dog. So um, just misinformation all over the place. Okay. So the, the police hired Peace River Search and Rescue, and then they did their search claimed there was a dog hit on the van and then inside the apartment. And then the police took some artifacts and the van. And then a few days later said, this is not evidence of human decomp. That's right. Mm -hmm. They blamed the van on the flooring work, you know, saying that if they tore out floors and bathrooms and there was urine or feces or menstrual blood, somehow traces of that in the flooring that 
the dogs might have alerted to that. So they they just ruled it out. But again, Mike made it very clear that a cadaver dog would never mistake urine or feces or menstrual blood for decomposing human remains. So I, I don't know where the breakdown happened. It seems like whatever expert took the items on behalf of the police department to you know further investigate maybe was wasn't quite understanding what the dogs were alerting to i'm not sure i can't say for them yeah we 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 don't have access it's an open case so the police won't talk to us share anything initially they you know they had responded to us but as the case this is when she was simply a missing person not simply but you know very early on and then as things got more complicated in the case they made it very clear that they would stop talking to us. So we have no idea except what is told to Lauren's family that they then pass on to us. And I'm curious about these items that you said were almost strategically placed. So yeah, so the initially so let's call it let's call it June 19th, 2020 that she disappears. Many people believe it actually was sometime between June 18th and June 19th. So, you know, we'll, 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 the official missing persons report says June 19th. The next day, June 20th, her items, her purse, her keys, her shoes, her wallet, which was in her purse with her ID, were all found in that same park, Four Freedoms Park which is, you know, two blocks from her apartment, right across the street from where her mom and her stepdad live. And they're all found there on a park bench, like a picnic table park bench type area. Um, They're turned in allegedly by a park goer to the park ranger. And about a week later, they put it, investigators put it together that the missing woman, Lauren DeMolo's thing, like that they're her things, so I guess I had been sitting in a lost and found type area for a while. And they finally, in a week, a week later, put it together that this was belonging actually to the missing woman. So those things are all in there, except her cell phone. Now, her cell phone was with her boyfriend. And we know that because a few days, um, so she, this was a Friday, that Friday, June 19th is allegedly when she disappeared. By Tuesday, when no police detective had been assigned to the case, Lauren's sisters and um, one of Lauren's sister's fiancés all go to the apartment um, and they're searching around for clues, see what happened. And that's when Gabby shows up to collect his television and announce that she's not coming home. So, you know, let's take the television. And um, he also hands over Lauren's phone, which he had in his possession. So all of her other things are in the park, but Gabby's got her phone. And they had also um, found a phone that wouldn't turn on, like a, a dead phone in the apartment. So, you know, they were sort of questioning him about that. And, and police actually were never able to unlock, even power on that other phone. But they were able to confirm that the phone handed by Gabby to them was Lauren's phone. Um, so the phone is there. So then, you know, the family's searching every single day, going to the park, combing the streets, passing out flyers. I mean, they're really like, hitting the ground running on this. Um, And so they, every single day search for Freedoms Park because, okay, her things are showing up there. That's where she had been Baker acted, that 5150 hold, like we talked about. And um, the more, so July 2nd, so like two weeks-ish later, they're searching that morning and, you know, they're like, okay, let's go canvas. They leave the park. 
they go canvas, they go back a little bit later. And Lauren's sister, Cassie says, you know what? I just want to check that one area over there. And it was at a boat dock area. There was a tree that was overhanging um, a pier. And so she starts walking towards that area, sort of at a far corner of the park, which is not a huge park, by the way. So they're just walking over there. En route there, and she's accompanied by Lindsay, Lauren's half-sister, and Lindsay's um, then-fiance, now husband, Matt. All of a sudden, Matt looks down, and he sees a shirt in the sand, laying out, and he recognizes it as Lauren's shirt. Now, he calls the girls over. They all come running over. 100% it's Lauren's shirt. It's laid out on the sand. It's not wet. It's not crumpled. It looks clean. It looks fresh. It is just laying out beautifully in the sand. It's like a a lacy um, maroon red peplum type shirt. And, you know, they, they freak out, of course. And they're like, this is Lauren's shirt. I know it. Lindsay's like, I went to the mall and bought this shirt with her. Like, I know this is her. So yes. Yeah, so they call forensics. Um, they call the detective Jones. He shows up. Forensics comes. They bag it. Yes, it's Lauren's shirt. But guess what? That shirt hadn't even been there earlier in the day. And it had not been there the past two weeks they had been searching. And they even set up for a news interview, exactly where the shirt was found, and it wasn't there. And you forgot to mention who was walking by when the shirt was discovered. Literally at the moment they find the shirt, they look around because they're like, who could have put this here? It was obvious to them that they, it had been planted by someone. And they look and Victor, Lauren's stepdad, is walking up the beach, walking his dog with sunglasses on, looking at them. Lindsay runs over to him. He has zero interest in talking to anyone and he walks away. As soon as they found the shirt, they looked up to be like, oh my gosh, where did this come from? They're looking around like, how did this just appear? They see Victor, the stepdad, walking his dogs a little bit across the park. They, Lindsay, Lauren's half-sister, goes running up to him. Victor, I think it's in our podcast. It's her like explaining in her own voice. Like, Victor, Victor, we just found Lauren's shirt. Oh my God. And he's just like, cool and keeps walking and walks the dogs home like no reaction at all and this is you know oh oh lauren is he considered her to be like a daughter to him and and he you know this is like a decades of i think like 20 years of uh you know father stepfather stepdaughter type relationship and she's been missing now and her shirt pops up and he doesn't even care now you could argue that he lives right across the street and he walks his dogs there three times a day which is what he told us actually we do have a an entire episode where we interview victor yeah and and he says like it's not that odd because i'm doing this uh three times a day anyway so you're there looking for the for you're there looking for anything so the odds were are probably more in the in the favor of like you might see him right exactly yeah but th- that he took no interest in what was found you know according to yeah. him he said well i saw them all over there and they didn't need one more person getting involved so yeah you could see it from both perspectives and you said the the park is pretty tiny. Is there is there anywhere to to hide or hang out in in the park? I mean, sure. There's a there's a jungle gym for kids. There's a sunbathing beach, like we said. It's an active boating waterway. I mean, you could easily hide in a boat, I suppose. There's a community center. It's not that small of a park. It's just not the world's biggest park, but it's it's big enough. It's like a, a your, I would say your standard city park size right yeah you know if you ask the police what happened because when matt found the shirt he looked around 
Um, and I will say, you know, Matt is one of the most level-headed people that we've encountered. Everyone is, you know, obviously some degree of, of stress in her family and Matt having not known Lauren too well or for that long has had a really good perspective on the case and really been level-headed. So first thing he did was look around to see where the nearest camera was. So he did. And there's a camera exactly facing where the shirt was dropped. So he said to Detective Jones, go rewind on that camera. You're going to see how the shirt got here. And again, according to Detective Jones, oh, it's nothing. It was a homeless person who kicked it up last night. Two homeless people kicked it up in the dark last night. And he said, well, we were here this morning and the shirt wasn't here. So, you know, every, every explanation that they've gotten has been so puzzling and left them with more questions. And the more anyone in her family presses for answers, the more they're just pushed back. I mean, the more they just don't have them. Speaking of answers and trying to get answers, can you talk about the private investigator that the family hired? He hasn't actually been able to determine anything and nobody knows where Lauren is still. But I will say that he has the experience um, and, you know, things like little things like the police. uh, Detective Jones has publicly cleared Gabby, her boyfriend, many times um, in many national publications and, and media and Walt 100% will not take his name off the suspect list for so many reasons. So I think he's just more about keeping an open mind. And even from the beginning, you know, he sort of faulted the Cape Coral police with classifying her as a missing person when he's pretty sure a crime has been committed. So he thought that, you know, major case squad should have been on it from the start. And, you know, it was just sort of treated as a oh, well, she used to have a drug problem, pretty blonde girl, she'll show up. You know, it's sort of, eh, he didn't think it was taken as seriously as it should have been. And I think that comes with a lot of experience as well to know the difference between types of cases. And where is Gabby now? Gabby is still in, uh, I'm going to say Fort Myers, which is right next to Cape Coral. We know he, he won't, he has not yet spoken with us. He's only given two very short interviews to local news. We have spoken with his best friend who is, who he stayed with after Lauren went missing. And he confirms that he's still working at the same company. He is still around. He's around, but he's not speaking about Lauren. He hasn't shown up to any searches. He won't participate in any Facebook groups or any public gatherings about her. He won't talk to the media. He has spoken with police that we know. He's taken a number of polygraph tests. So he's around, but not really helping. And what's your call to action for anybody who has information about Lauren's disappearance? We've actually made it really easy on our website to contact on our website, which is um, complicit-podcast.com we have a whole thing where you can write in an anonymous tip to us. We'll forward it along. We have a way for you to contact Walt anonymously, the private investigator. Mm -hmm. You can call, um, I'll just say the number. So it's handy here. It's 239-574-3223. You can go to www.capecops.com forward slash tips. Or um, you can call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-780-TIPS. 
you, you can leave tips anonymously. There's a reward right now for information leading to what happened, <laughs> arrest or otherwise. Yeah. And again, the, the two of you have done just such a amazing job putting it all together and communicating all of the details in, again, a very uh, consumable way and responsible way. So uh, applause to you both for doing that and doing it at such a level where you have people citing you citing you as the source because um all too often we see it that these stories get so cluttered with people's theories and their opinions and then their opinions on someone else's theory and it just gets like into this big mess of like what's the facts where did those go like where's the where's the victim here um and it's always good to have a source that you have put together to look at so again good job with that and um I was curious when you decided that you weren't going to give your opinions on a show titled Complicit. We really wanted to present the case as we learned about it, as we know it to be true. We can only present facts that were given. So, for example, we'd love to talk to Gabby and get his side, but we've been unable and unsuccessful uh, with that. But we got Victor, whose name appears pretty suspiciously throughout the podcast. And we really, you know, were so grateful when he replied finally and agreed to be interviewed because we want to show all sides. We want to be responsible journalists, if that's, you know, what you want to call us. We want to show just the facts. But of course, we're limited by the facts we are presented. And, you know, of course, there we corroborate them. But you know, that's we, we made the decision very early on not to have opinions, let the facts go where they go, and that's it. Yep. That's not to say we don't have opinions, we just don't share them. We have lots of strong opinions, but um, until the evidence proves any of them to be true, we're not going to talk about them publicly. 